Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, number 24, for mid-August 2023. The First Gentleman of Philadelphia, Henry Plummer McElhenney. Welcome to the 24th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories. It's an active and historic cemetery in Bala Kidwood, Pennsylvania. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide and volunteer podcaster. Laurel Hill West opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia. It's more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East, and it has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. And like Laurel Hill East, it is open 365 days a year, now from 7 a.m. till 7 p.m. There's plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the conservatory and bell tower. If you enter from Belmont, follow the road past the second gate with the white line in the middle. Another possibility, just come on in while you're walking the Kenwood Heritage Trail. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the R6 to Maniunk or a bus to the Wissahickon Transportation Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River. You will be leaving Philadelphia proper. You'll be going into a different county, Montgomery County. Use the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, then walk up Writers Ferry Road to the entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. This 24th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is for mid-August 2023. Henry Plummer McElhenney was a Harvard graduate, a Navy veteran, and an art collector extraordinaire. At one time, he owned the most property of any individual in Ireland. His parties in his mansion on Rittenhouse Square were legendary, and his friends were among the A-list of his time. Fellow historian and Laurel Hill tour guide Thomas Keels has studied Henry extensively, and he wants to share with you what he has found. It is a fascinating journey. Andy Warhol considered him the only person in town with glamour. The Philadelphia Art Alliance deemed him the first gentleman of Philadelphia. Connoisseur magazine named him one of the top ten art collectors of all time. 
In the words of his longtime friend, art historian, and biographer James Lord, there is no question about it. Henry was great fun. Henry Plummer McElhenney was heir to a gas meter fortune, world traveler, art collector, master of an Irish castle, World War II veteran, philanthropist, bon vivant, and host with the most. Upon his death in 1986, he left the Philadelphia Museum of Art, a body of works valued at $100 million. The McElhenney bequest elevated the museum's French collection into one of the finest in the country, featuring masterpieces by Angre, Delacroix, Toulouse-Lautrec, Renoir, Matisse, and Cézanne. Henry McElhenney was also a living illustration of William Makepeace Thackeray's dictum that it takes three generations to make a gentleman. Or, as Henry himself put it, it was back to the bogs in three generations. His grandfather, John McElhenney, was Scotch-Irish, or an Ulster Scot, as they are known in Ireland. He was born in 1830 in Milford, County Donegal, in the northwest corner of what is now the Republic of Ireland. In 1843, John immigrated to Philadelphia with his widowed mother and siblings, just in time to avoid the Irish potato famine. In 1963, when Henry McElhenney owned the nearby estate of Glenvay, he showed his guest the humble house where his grandfather had been born. Thank God he left when he was 14, he informed them. If he'd stayed on and died, well, my dear, no gas meter, no Henry, and no Glenvay. What a loss to civilization. Once in Philadelphia, John McElhenney married another Scotch-Irish immigrant, Berenice Bell, in 1855. They moved to Columbus, Georgia, where John trained as an engineer. He served as mayor, established the local school system, and became prominent in public utilities. Despite losing everything in the Civil War, John launched the family fortune in the 1870s by perfecting and patenting the first mechanical gas meter. This was at a time when most homes in American cities used gas for lighting and cooking. John returned to Philadelphia and established the firm of Helm & McElhenney, which had a near monopoly on the production and sale of gas meters for decades. His son, also named John, expanded the family's wealth as a private equity investor, buying and reorganizing utility companies and then reselling them at a profit. In 1908, John and his wife Frances began to build a Tudor-style mansion named Parkgate on Lincoln Drive in Germantown, on a bluff overlooking the entrance to Wissahickon Valley Park. The spacious estate provided a comfortable home for their three children, John Jr., born in 1899, Bernice, or Bonnie, born in 1903, and Henry, born in 1910. A fourth child, Francis, died at the age of four. Despite the opulent setting, John's devout Presbyterian faith created an atmosphere that Henry would later call a little door, the children attended church every Sunday, and there were no music, card games, or newspapers allowed on the Sabbath. Park 8 did include one indulgence for John Sr., a private gallery to display his growing art collection. John's collecting mania, which he would share with his wife and two of his three children, 
began in 1908 when he acquired a group of oriental rugs to cover the floors of Park Gate. Before long, the carpets were joined by antique English furniture, Georgian Irish silver, and paintings that included an oil sketch by John Constable and the Zither Players by Thomas Aikens. At the time of his death in 1924, John D. McElhenney was president of the Pennsylvania Museum and School of Industrial Art. He was responsible for hiring Fisk Kimball, the legendary director who would transform the antiquated institution into the modern-day Philadelphia Museum of Art. John's wife, Frances, was one of the first women to serve on the museum's board, a position she would hold until her death in 1943. Henry P. McElhenney attended Episcopal Academy and the Milton Academy in Boston before matriculating at Harvard University. There, he belonged to socially elite organizations like the Signet Society, the Hasty Pudding Club, and Delta Kappa Epsilon. Henry graduated Harvard magna cum laude in 1933 and stayed an extra year for graduate work. During this period, Harvard was the center of art education and research in the United States. The first art conservation laboratory in America, the Department of Technical Research, today the Strauss Center for Conservation and Technical Studies, had been founded there in 1928. McElhenney studied under Paul J. Sachs, director of Harvard's Fogg Art Museum. Sachs developed the first American program of museum curatorship. Many of his students would go on to lead the largest art museums in this country. While still at Harvard, McElhenney used his generous allowance to begin his own collection with an oil painting, Still Life with Hair, by the 18th century French artist Jean Semillon Chardin. He also purchased drawings by Corot, Seurat, and Matisse. Henry later said that Paul Sachs taught him not to buy higgledy-piggledy all over the map. He said it's much better to concentrate on one field and develop that. Aware that he could never compete for old masters against ultra-wealthy collectors like Andrew Mellon or J.P. Morgan, Henry decided to focus on more affordable French art of the 19th and early 20th centuries. These works became an even bigger bargain after the Great Depression rocked the global economy. On his first visit to Europe in the summer of 1933, Henry wrote his mother that the desire to collect consumes me with a raging fire. On this trip, he acquired his first Delacroix, a portrait of a young student named Eugène Bernie Duville. Renoir's pen and ink drawing of the dancing couple, a study for the dance at Bougival, and a Degas drawing, the ballet master Jules Perrault. He also purchased works by Kiriko, Picasso, and Lursa for his sister Bonnie, now the wife of a Philadelphia lawyer named John Winterstein. Under her son's tutelage, Frances McElhenney also became an ardent admirer of French art. By 1935, with her assistance, Henry had acquired such major works as At the Moulin Rouge by Toulouse-Lautrec, Still Life on Table, The Pineapple by Matisse, Cézanne's Portrait of His Wife, The Death of Sardanapalus by Delacroix, Mademoiselle Legrand by Renoir, and Interior by Degas. After completing his graduate work at Harvard, 
Henry returned to live with his mother at Parkgate. In 1934, Fisk Kimball invited Henry to join the Philadelphia Museum of Art as assistant curator of decorative arts. Henry worked closely with Henri Masseau, chief of the Department of Paintings and Sculpture. Together, the two men mounted three successful shows on Degas, Daumier, and William Blake. The 1936 Degas retrospective won international praise and still stands as one of the most important examinations of the artist ever undertaken. Henry's pay as a curator was negligible. For several years, he received a token salary of $1 per annum. But the museum offered a congenial working atmosphere. Henry affectionately addressed his women colleagues as the stooges and strainers, while they referred to him as love boat. The curatorship also allowed Henry four or five months of vacation, giving the young connoisseur time for lengthy travel in Europe. Henry expanded his personal collection on these trips, purchasing David's monumental portrait of Pope Pius VII and Cardinal Caprera, Seurat's study for Les Poseurs, and the Degas sculpture Little Dancer of 14 Years. He also identified potential acquisitions for his employer, such as Cezanne's Large Bathers and Degas' ballet class. On one of these European jaunts, Henry made the largest acquisition of his life, a 32,000-acre Irish estate named Glenvae, complete with a cursed chateau. Glenvae Castle stands at the edge of a large lake in County Donegal, near the town where Henry's grandfather was born. The baronial structure, built of grey granite, is dominated by a large square tower with a corner turret. Medieval in appearance, it was actually constructed in the 1860s as a country estate and hunting lodge. Glenvae's first owner was a nouveau riche businessman named John Adair, who used Queen Victoria's Scottish retreat Balmoral as his model. Black Jack Adair was infamous for evicting 47 families who lived as tenants on his property so he could convert the land to pasture and hunting grounds. According to legend, the dispossessed peasants cursed his estate. When Adair died in 1885 and was buried in a nearby churchyard, a dead dog was thrown on his grave as a token of their regard. In the 1920s, Glenvay was purchased by Arthur Kingsley Porter, a Harvard art professor and archaeologist who would later serve as a model for Indiana Jones. On a sunny day in July 1933, Porter disappeared without a trace. According to some reports, he was rowing from his bungalow on a small island near Glenvay when a sudden storm swamped his boat and he drowned. Others said he fell off a cliff while hunting for gulls' eggs, while some insisted that he had faked his own death to run off to Paris with his mistress. His body was never found. According to yet another legend, Porter's untimely demise was the result of his desecration of a medieval Spanish sarcophagus in the 1920s. Henry, who had studied under Porter at Harvard, and his mother Frances rented Glenvay from Porter's widow. Despite its troubled provenance, they fell in love with the rambling, romantic castle, its sweeping views, and its beautiful gardens. In 1937, 
Henry purchased the castle and its 32,000 acres for $25,000, furnishing it with the finest Irish silver and furniture. He delighted in playing the country gentleman at Glenvae, writing to the Stooges and Strainers at the Museum of Art that Ireland has been a great success in every way, although the country is shocked by the lack of a chaperone. Nine stags have been shot, one being the crude handiwork of your associate curator of decorative art. The fishing has been excellent, and to my infinite surprise, I killed, caught to you, a salmon. In comparison, Daumier is just too dull. Donegal is not art-conscious, thank God, and after a month on the continent, I couldn't have looked at another object. I really am reverting to nature. In 1939, Henry was promoted to curator at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. But the coming of World War II brought both professional and personal upheaval. In 1942, he was commissioned a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy, and the following year he was mobilized to the aircraft carrier USS Bunker, assigned to the South Pacific. Henry later told an interviewer that when his captain asked him about his civilian background, he replied that he was a curator for an art museum. I think if he hadn't been seated, he would have fallen down in shock. Finally, he replied that there was another officer coming, and he hoped that one wasn't a music critic. Despite his artistic background, Henry served with distinction for the next two years, participating in naval actions on the Bismarck Archipelago, Bougainville, the Gilbert and Marshall Islands, and West New Guinea. By the end of the war, he had been promoted to lieutenant commander. In March 1943, Francis McElhenney, Henry's mother, confidant, artistic partner, and treasurer, died. Henry received her valuable art, real estate, silver, and furniture, but the majority of her fortune was tied up in strictly entailed trusts, which would pass to his sister Bonnie's four sons if and when Henry died without issue. While Henry would continue to enjoy his own considerable private income, he would need to exercise restraint in his purchases from then on. After his discharge in 1946, Henry returned to his curatorship at the Museum of Art. Peace meant a return to his beloved Glenvae, which he filled with Victorian paintings by Edwin Landseer and Richard Ansdell. Henry could also renew his European travels, spending a year as resident art historian at the American Academy in Rome. While Henry began to expand his collection to include contemporary artists like Pavel Celicu, Franklin Watkins, and Marsden Hartley, he continued to focus on 19th-century French art. In 1949, he acquired Van Hoff's Rain, depicting the view of rain-swept fields from the artist asylum window in the hospital at Saint-Rémy. It would be the last major painting that Henry acquired. In 1951, Henry sold Parkgate and purchased the property which would remain his primary residence until his death 35 years later a townhouse at 1914 Rittenhouse Square in Center City, Philadelphia. The four-story brick structure, 
built in 1858, had been the home of the late art collector Lisa Norris Elkins. Elkins had left her house and pictures to the museum, and the museum sold the house to Henry. Henry immediately purchased the building to the west of 1914, tearing it down and having his architect friend George Roberts design a formal entrance with a Monticello-like dome fronting a garden courtyard. By this time, Rittenhouse Square had declined from its Gilded Age grandeur to a distinct seediness. Many of its once elegant mansions had been converted to apartments or demolished for high-rises. The square had also gained notoriety as a gathering place for the gay community. But Henry wanted to be in Philadelphia, and he envisioned 1914 Rittenhouse Square as the social hub of the revitalized post-war city. Henry helped to launch the Philadelphia Renaissance of the 1950s, which saw moneyed suburbanites moving back to town to restore historic 18th and 19th century residences in Society Hill and Rittenhouse Square. In 1951, Henry wrote a friend, My house is going to be absolutely marvelous, and my pictures look extremely well in their new setting. Before long, at the Moulin Rouge and the death of Sardanapalus, were hanging on walls covered with green moiré silk, in a room filled with French Charles X furniture upholstered in red and gold. This and the other lavishly appointed chambers became the setting for a series of equally lavish parties, populated by the High Society of Philadelphia, the luminaries of the art world, and the many celebrities Henry had befriended on his travels. In 1955, a struggling young artist named Andy Warhol sketched Cecil Beaton's bare feet, with a flower tucked between two toes, as the English photographer sat napping in Henry's garden. Henry's two aides-de-camp in his social conquest of Philadelphia were his secretary, Mrs. Hermitage, and his butler, Henry Fussy. Mrs. Hermitage, who coordinated Henry's numerous social affairs, was a middle-aged lady of terse and impeccable efficiency whose first name was a mystery to all. Fussy was tall, stout, and elderly, with the demeanor and dignity of a senior diplomat. During the day, he was always attired in a swallow-tailed morning coat, striped trousers, and a pearl-gray necktie. After dark, he was resplendent in full evening dress. Before coming to Henry, he had been the major domo for Edward and Ava Stotesbury at their palatial estate, White Marsh Hall. Eventually, the elderly fussy was superseded by Paddy Gallagher, an Irishman who had come to Glenvay as a footman at the age of 16 and who would remain Henry's butler until 1986. While 1914 Rittenhouse Square took shape, Henry continued to serve the Philadelphia Museum of Art as its curator of decorative arts. During the 1950s, he organized three major exhibitions of early Philadelphia furniture, silver, and china, each one considered to be a landmark show. He also coordinated several important acquisitions. These included a major collection of Pennsylvania Dutch folk art and furniture, and the magnificent suite of Constantine tapestries designed by Peter Paul Rubens as a gift from Louis XIII to Cardinal Barberina. 
Henry continued to enjoy lengthy vacations, touring the continent or staying at Glenvae in Ireland. Despite Glenvae's isolation and primitive nature, telephones and electricity would not be installed until the 1960s, an invitation from Henry was coveted by the emerging post-war jet set. Celebrities like the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Greta Garbo, Vivian Lee, and John Huston made their way to the remote estate. There, they savored its idealized version of country house life, with strolls through magnificent gardens laid out by Lanning Roper, sumptuous teas with scrumptious cakes and scones, and elegant black-tie dinners. Henry had a genius for mixing the most unexpected melange of guests to create a scintillating and often provocative evening. One relative noted that Glenvae was his theater. Henry's frequent traveling companion was Angus Menzies, a British actor and his former lover. Henry's homosexuality was an open secret in both Philadelphia and Europe, accepted with good grace as long as nothing on the surface appeared too conspicuously out of order. He was one of Philadelphia's perennial bachelors who enriched its cultural and social scenes, and his coveted party invitations quelled any qualms that his guest might entertain about his personal life. In 1960, Henry hired a luxurious yacht and cruised among the Greek islands with a group of friends. The yacht dropped anchor at the small island of Idre, home to a naval academy training young men to become officers in the Greek merchant marine. Several curious cadets swam out to the yacht and were invited on board by the hospitable Henry. He provided them with robes and drinks and introduced them to his guests. According to Henry's friend James Lord, the best-looking boy and the one who spoke the most English had curly dark hair, lean tanned features, sparkling teeth, black eyes, and a slender but muscular physique. His name was Todoros Rubanis, but everyone called him Teo. Henry invited Teo to stay for dinner when the other cadets swam back to shore, and then invited him to spend the night. The next day, Teo arranged a leave of absence from the Naval Academy and accompanied Henry for the rest of the cruise. He then joined Henry at Glenvae for the rest of the summer. When fall arrived, Henry returned to America with Teo in tow, but not to Philadelphia where too many tongues would wag. Instead, Henry installed Teo in an Upper East Side apartment in Manhattan and paid for acting and singing lessons for the aspiring performer. Teo traveled down to Philadelphia for discreet weekends on Rittenhouse Square. Sadly, Henry's honeymoon with Teo was ephemeral. Teo met Henry's party guest Andy Warhol in New York and quickly became a hanger-on at the factory and at Max's Kansas City. Soon the weekends in Philadelphia grew less frequent, while Teo stayed in New York and romanced actresses from Warhol's entourage at the apartment paid for by Henry. During Teo's visits to Philadelphia, his drunken temper tantrums grew more frequent. Finally, Henry and Teo called it a day, and Teo returned to Greece for compulsory military training. According to James Lord, this was Henry's last serious relationship. Despite the breakup, Henry continued to support his former boyfriend. 
By 1967, Teo was a civilian again and struggling to launch a film career in Greece. He had only been able to score bit parts in films like Mother Goes Greek and Sex and the Single Sailor. Henry pulled strings with the British film director Tony Richardson, who was shooting a movie in Greece, and got the handsome Teo cast in a minor role in a major production. The movie The Sailor from Gibraltar starred the legendary French actress Jean Moreau. The film was a bomb, but Moreau and Teo began a passionate romance. The 40-year-old star of Jules et Jim was besotted with the 25-year-old Adonis. There were even rumors of marriage until Moreau's teenage son and her lawyers intervened and broke up the affair. To console the heartbroken Teo, Henry invited him on another yacht cruise through the Aegean Islands. One of his fellow passengers was Lady Sarah Consuela Spencer Churchill, daughter of the 10th Duke of Marlborough and a cousin of Winston Churchill. The 45-year-old English aristocrat had just suffered through an acrimonious divorce from her second husband, Chilean playboy Guy Burgos. Like Jean Moreau, Sarah fell headfirst for the handsome young Greek. The two were married before the end of the year. Their marriage lasted for 13 years before Teo left Sarah for a younger woman. In 1964, Henry McElhenney retired as curator of decorative arts at the Philadelphia Museum of Art after 30 years of service. He was immediately named to the museum's board of trustees, serving as chairman from 1976 until 1986. He also joined the boards of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera. By this time, his relatively small but highly selective collection had become world-famous, covered by the media with rabid interest. Articles about Henry, his art, his homes, and his lifestyle appeared in every major newspaper and magazine, including the New York Times, House Beautiful, Cosmopolitan, Town and Country, and Vogue. According to Henry, my dear, Angles and Cezanne are better box office than Rock Hudson and Lana Turner. Henry continued to expand his home on Rittenhouse Square to provide an appropriate setting for both his world-class collection and his world-renowned parties. In 1972, he bought the five-story stone mansion to the east of 1914 Rittenhouse. The space was fitted out as guest rooms, offices and living quarters for his staff, and the first ballroom to be built in an American home after World War II. Henry's palatial ballroom, hung with elaborate crystal chandeliers, occupied the entire ground floor of the renovated mansion. In the winter of 1973, the expanded residence was featured in Architectural Digest. It is a full and exciting house, the writer gushed, a prodigious house, reflecting Mr. McElhaney's enormous vitality. Thus equipped, Henry could embrace his role as his hometown's premier social arbiter. Invitations to his parties were prized above all others in Philadelphia. The festivities ranged from decorous Sunday afternoon concerts for 30 to hear Dietrich Fischer Dieskau sing or Yehudi Menuhin play the violin, to balls for 150, which sometimes grew frenetic around 3 a.m., to the occasional intimate late supper for gentlemen only. 
Guests might include socialites like Brooke Astor and Gloria Edding, composers like Giancarlo Menotti and Samuel Barber, writers like Stephen Spender and Kenneth Clark, and theatrical luminaries like Tennessee Williams and Helen Hayes. Even Andy Warhol, now the celebrated pop art painter of soup cans, brought his entire cast of superstars, including baby Jane Holzer, and showed his underground movies. Parties in Philadelphia often ended at 11, one friend left, but at Henry's, no one wanted to leave. Henry's own favorite expression to denote a successful soiree was, it's a hoot. People inevitably praised Henry's personal charm as a host, and his ability to treat the most humble or mundane guest with the same interest he might lavish on an A-list celebrity. I learned long ago that a bore is only boring if you expect him to be like yourself, he explained. If you observe him with the same attention you would give to a strange work of art, you always have something to learn. As Henry grew older and his health began to fail, he curtailed his activities. There were fewer trips abroad to exotic locations like San Tropez and Rio de Janeiro. He deaccessioned works from his collection to cover household expenses and to finance his fantastic parties. In 1975, he sold most of his Glenvay estate, which he had purchased for $25,000 in 1937, for roughly $3 million to the Republic of Ireland as a public park and wildlife sanctuary. By then, the 32,000-acre property was the largest privately owned parcel of land in the country. Henry continued to use Glenvay Castle as a part-time home until 1981, when he formally presented it as a gift to the Irish nation. Today, Glenvay National Park is the second largest of Ireland's six public parks. It boasts the biggest herd of red deer in Ireland, if not in all of Europe, and is home to the once nearly extinct Golden Eagle, reintroduced to the park in 2000. Henry McElhenney died on May 11, 1986, at the age of 75, after undergoing heart surgery at Hahnemann University Hospital. His sister, Bernice McElhenney Winterstein, who had served as president of the Philadelphia Museum of Art herself from 1964 to 1968, predeceased him by only 18 days, dying on April 24th. Henry left his art collection, valued at $100 million, to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. His bequest filled the museum's French galleries with such masterpieces as Anglis's portrait of the Countess of Tournon, Jacques-Louis David's Pope Pius VII and Cardinal Caprera, four Delacroix paintings, including the 1844 version of The Death of Sardanapalus, Van Gogh's Reign, three Toulouse-Lautrecs, including his self-portrait and his dance at the Moulin Rouge, Degas' interior, Matisse's still life on table, The Pineapple, and Cezanne's portrait of Madame Cezanne. Besides these gems, Henry also left the museum a second assemblage of 19th century art from Glenvay, as well as his extensive collection of French restoration and empire furniture, Irish and English silver, and other decorative arts. Praise poured in from members of the art community in Philadelphia and around the world. 
Robert Montgomery Scott, then president of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, called Henry the most generous man I have ever known, and the best company. We shall never see the likes of him again. J. Carter Brown, director of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, noted that it wasn't the size of his collection that was so impressive, it was its quality. He had an extraordinary eye. Every object sang. In May 1987, one year after Henry's death, hundreds of his former possessions that the Philadelphia Museum of Art decided not to keep were sold at auction at Christie's in New York. The sale, which ranged from antique dog collars to a monumental painting of Cupid and Psyche attributed to the Italian artist Bernardino Nocchi, realized another $3.7 million for the museum. The night before the auction, 200 of Henry's friends and acquaintances gathered for a gala dinner at Christie's Park Avenue headquarters to toast his memory. Many of them sensed that Philadelphia had lost something precious, stylish, and effervescent that would never come its way again. Life in Philadelphia is inconceivable without him, sighed one socialite. Gloria Edding, a Rittenhouse Square neighbor, noted that so many of my friends aren't buying evening dresses anymore because without Henry there's really no place to wear them. Leonore Annenberg, wife of publisher and philanthropist Walter Annenberg, said Henry brought people to Philadelphia who never ordinarily have come. They say no one is irreplaceable, but Henry was irreplaceable. Surveying the festivities, New York socialite and philanthropist Brooke Astor commented, Henry would just love this. He'd think it was a hoot. Today, many traces of Henry McElhenney's enchanted world have vanished. His magical parties are fading memories for a steadily shrinking number of elderly socialites. His Irish castle entertains hikers and bird watchers instead of the international jet set. Parkgate, his family mansion, is an abandoned, defaced ruin on the outskirts of Germantown. Henry's showplace, 1914 Rittenhouse Square, stood empty for nearly three decades before it was sold in 2013 to real estate developer Bart Blatstein for $4.2 million. Today, the rebuilt 17,000-square-foot urban villa boasts a basement tennis court, a central courtyard with a retractable roof, an infinity pool, and other amenities that Henry never envisioned. Yet Henry McElhenney's world remains alive and intact for the hundreds of thousands of visitors who crowd the Philadelphia Museum of Art every year, standing entranced before Toulouse-Lautrec's at the Moulin Rouge or Van Gogh's reign. Thanks in no small part to Henry, Philadelphia stands as one of the great centers of French art outside France, with its triple crown of the Museum of Art, the Rodin Museum, and the Barnes Foundation. While their settings may have been dismantled, the jewels that Henry coveted and collected throughout his life are now available to everyone. All of this speaks of man who, in the words of poet Stephen Spender, counts his prodigious blessings every day, is enormously grateful for them, and lives up to them. Today, Henry Plummer McElhenney 
rests in the McElhenney family lot at Laurel Hill Cemetery West, Woodlawn Section, Lot 5. This is Thomas Keels for All Bones Considered. First, I want to thank Tom Keels for telling us that wonderful story about Henry McElhenney. If you want to learn more about Henry's sister, Bernice Bonnie Winterstein, check out All Bones Considered number 24 from March of 2021. It's called Four Women Leaders You Should Know. The September edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 54, is called Hey, I Know That Song. William Kirkpatrick was an Irish-born American hymn writer who composed more than a thousand religious songs, including one that has become a favorite Christmas standard. Septimus Winner wrote hundreds of songs in the 19th century. Many of them are still sung today, especially in school and around fires at camps. Brenda Payton and her R&B group, The Tabulations, had two big sellers, Dry Your Eyes and Right on the Tip of My Tongue. And Phoebe Blessington was an up-and-coming singer, tragically killed on her way to a gig, just as her career was taking off. Plus, we'll spend a minute or two with Leonard Hub Hubbard, the original bass player for The Roots. I had planned to include musicologist Mick Edward Leach and Sophie Drinker, but they're going to have to wait for another podcast. Look for this one on September 1st. In Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, episode 25 in mid-September, I will tell you about Glenna Collette Vare, who is considered the female Bobby Jones and was the best woman golfer in the United States from the early 1920s to the mid-1930s. Even if you are not a golfer, you will want to hear about this extraordinary woman who was years ahead of her time. Listen for this one on the 15th of September. I remind you that there are self-guided tours available from both cemeteries. For Laurel Hill East, download the app. For Laurel Hill West, you can find it with your podcasts. It's a walkthrough from the Kinwood Trail entrance to the Pencoid exit, and then there's another one in the opposite direction. If you do the round trip, it's about two hours of stopping at stones, peeping in mausoleums, and hearing about nearly 100 people who helped make Philadelphia what it is today. All Bones Considered and Biographical Bites from Bala are are mostly researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and podcaster for both cemeteries. You can reach me through my email, joe at joelex.net. You can check out the weekly radio show that I do for WPPMLP every Tuesday at 2 p.m. ET, either from phillychem.org or from my website, joelex.xyz. Today's episode was researched and narrated by historian and tour guide Thomas Keels, who has written several books about the history of Philadelphia. You can find them at his website, thomaskeels.com. I especially recommend Wicked Philadelphia. The theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrow. You can check out what he's doing at the Fringe Festival this year. Maybe I'll see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well.